back to Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast brought to you by ToughPicks.com. This used to be the podcast where we watched The Great Muppet Caper two minutes at a time and talked about it a lot, Uh, but we're done with The Great Muppet Caper, but I'm still your host, Anthony Strand. And I'm still your other host, Ryan Rowe. And joining us today is a very special return guest. Who are you, guest? Uh, Hi, I'm Eric Brown uh, from the Tough Pig Forums. It's true. It's all true. And Eric is joining us today to talk about minutes one through 94 of the Dark Crystal. <laughs> In these I- minutes, single shines the triple sun, what was sundered and undone becomes whole, the two made one by Gelflinghand, but not by none. Yes, Eric, what? Oh, no, I was, uh, I was, I was going to say I only watched the first two minutes. So. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. We weren't clear on the concept of this episode. Oh, darn. Oh, see, and that's something we really should talk about up front, I think, is I don't think either one of us had it in us to try to do this movie two minutes at a time. No, I think we talked about it very briefly, but um, no, I I think the the Trial by Stone podcast may have already done that. But yeah, I don't think we could have uh, made it through that. Yeah. And actually, we should give them a shout out for for listeners who are fans of the movie. It's a very in-depth Dark Crystal podcast. Yes, yes, they've covered everything. Right. So we're going to we're going to keep it a little more general today. We're just kind of talking about our general thoughts about the movie. It is a very important part of Jim Henson's career, one of the three feature films he directed, so we didn't want to leave it out entirely. But we are all go- also going to try to take it in one, maybe two if it goes along. So uh we're going to start up front by talking about I just want to talk about let's what is your history with this movie? Do you remember the first time you saw it? How, how do you feel about it? Like, wh- what are your feelings about The Dark Crystal? Eric, I'll start with you. Um, I saw it in the theaters when it came out. Um, so I was 10. Um, and I loved it. Um, I, I bet it's a lot. I bet, I bet it's very impressive theatrically. I mean, there's uh, so much visual. Yeah, I mean, excitement. just mm-hmm. seeing it up on a huge screen. I, I haven't seen it on a, on a big screen like that since you know, 82. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, loved it. Um, uh, when the, when it, I don't remember if I ever got it on VHS, but when it, when the DVD was released, I bought the DVD despite the fact that I did not own a DVD player yet. Um, awesome. so I, yes, I, I bought the DVD player, I think a few months after that and, and topped in the, the movie and watched it. Um, which is, so I was very happy about that. Um, yeah, it was actually like when the DVD came out, it was fairly early in the, uh, in the DVD era. Yeah. I, I actually, I remember paying $30 for it at Suncoast. Whoa. So, uh, that tells you how long ago it was. Well, Suncoast was was always more expensive too. Right. But it was, you know, it was a single disc too, and it was still $30, you know? Yeah. I mean, even at Suncoast, you know, you're buying a, a one, one disc DVD, you're paying 15, 20 bucks a lot of times. Anyways, go on, Eric. Yes, but it is a special edition DVD. Um, yeah. You know, contains the, uh, the World of the Dark Crystal, um, making of special, uh, deleted scenes, uh, original language track scenes. So it, it is a very nice DVD. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I, I, I want to get into some of that extra textual stuff a little later. Yeah. Too. Uh, so, yeah, I just always loved it. Always, I just thought it was this amazing film, an amazing look. Um, uh, there are, you know, just shots of, of plants and animals in this movie that I could 
just sit and watch over and over. And, uh, you know, Skeksis are, are amazing. They're such great characters. And so, yeah, just always loved it. Yeah. What about you guys? Awesome. How about you, Ryan? Yeah, I'm actually really glad we're talking about this um, up front because I think that's important for the, the the sort of context of how we're talking about it for the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I the first time I saw it, I'm pretty sure it was on TV, and it must have been like the first network TV broadcast. And my parents taped that, so I had this taped from TV, and I would rewatch it uh, in my childhood. And I always just sort of assumed like oh, this is a movie that Jim Henson made, so it must be a good movie. And then I got older, and I started sort of viewing media more critically, and then I discovered that there were some Muppet fans who actually didn't think it was a good movie. So I sort of turned against it (laughs) for a while, where I was like, oh, actually, it's cool to say that this movie isn't good. Well, I, I, you say some Muppet fans, but I remember specifically uh, our friend Danny Horn, who was actually on our last episode, had it in his bio on the Tough Pigs forum under po- political views. It was like, I don't like the Dark Crystal or La- Labyrinth yeah. or something. So Yeah. I, I mean, he obviously was, so, was one of the, the most uh, vocal about that. Right. Just like both but, movies? Yeah. Yeah. But I think like for young fans like us, it was like, well, if Danny doesn't like it. Maybe we don't. Maybe we shouldn't like it. Maybe I should think what Danny thinks. You know? A little bit, and also just realizing for the first time, like, oh yeah, actually the story's not that good. So, you know, so j- just maybe overreacting in that direction. Um, but now I'm sort of in the middle, I guess. I it's it's not a good story, <clears throat> and there are some major problems with the main character, but. Um, I, it's, it's impossible for me now not to just appreciate the artistry of it. And obviously Jim Henson and his colleagues put so much effort into it and it was such a, a labor of love for them. <clears throat> so I do find a lot to appreciate on the screen when I watch it now. Sure. Me uh, too. I yeah. I can't um, argue against your criticisms, um, but I still love it. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'll be the negative Nancy here today then, um, because I, I do agree with you guys that it looks great. Like, visually, it's spectacular. I love just, like, having it on while I'm doing something. Um, you know, like, working on some, <laughs> having the Dark Crystal on while I'm paying my taxes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I I cannot pay attention through this entire movie. Well, no, I, I w- when I, I was rewatching it, I, it for this, I was definitely kind of looking periodically to see how much time was left. It, I right. did get to a point where it's like, okay, I'm, you've impressed me enough with your technical prowess. Let's get this to the end of it. Right. Well, while I was rewatching it for this, I actually cleaned my entire living room. Yeah. Because it was like, well, I got to do that sometime. Okay. <laughs> um, but I will say I went into it. I hadn't watched this since the TV show came out. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking about Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, of course, right. which I loved. I, I did not expect to like it because, I, like I said, I'm not that fond of the movie, and I loved it. I, I ate up all 10 episodes. I have oh, a yeah. T-shirt with Deep on it. Um, I, I love it. Deep and rocks. so she's the, she's the best. So I went into it kind of being like, oh, you know, now that I love the Dark Crystal world, maybe I'll like this movie more. But it, instead, I just wish I was watching the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think the the show made me appreciate the world a little bit more just because it kind of fills it out some, right. but, um, 
Well, I just think like, and I don't feel great saying this about something that Jim Henson poured his heart and soul into, right? Like this movie was a real labor of love for him. Mm -hmm. But I think that the TV show made by a bunch of people who are not Jim Henson, like for me, takes everything that is good about the movie, discards everything bad and adds a whole bunch more good, (laughs) you you know? So it's like, I, I, I prefer it so greatly, but it's like, the bones of, of, of what I liked are here and it's fun mm-hmm. to watch for that reason. But man, I just don't care about this story at all. Right. The, the show is a much more compelling and entertaining, you know, piece of, of media. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so should we, should, should we get into the characters? Do we, do, do we want to talk about Jen first off our, our, our hero? Might as well get it over with. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to say up, front that I, I know Jim Henson sa- has said, he said this in interviews at the time that like, he thought it would be distracting if he voiced Jen, which is a character that he performed. And I guess it would be, but man, like if this movie was exactly the same, but Jen sounded like Ernie, I would care so much more about him automatically. <laughs> what I if know, he I sounded think it, like yeah, Nigel? I agree. <laughs> I agree with Jim. I, I think his voice doesn't work for for Jen. Do you think Steven, Steven Garlic's voice work? Whatever. That's not right. What is his name? Steven Gar- Garling. No, it's garlic with a K. Gar- garlic with a K. But do you think his, kid. do you think his voice works for Jen, Eric? It's okay. Yeah. I just find him very like flat and bored sounding. I wonder how much of that is the script though. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that's right. I, you know, I, I never thought about it. I, I do think that Jim's instinct was correct that it would be distracting if it was one of his voices, but I never thought about would it be better if it were a different actor, but yeah, you might be onto something there. Yeah. But I think you're, you you might be right that it's just, I mean, the movie gives him all this, like, I don't know what I'm doing. My master told me to do a thing and I don't know if I can do a thing narration. And it's, yeah, I think they're going ugh. for a version of the hero's journey but it's just like he never becomes that heroic until maybe the very last minute. Right. Yeah. I'll agree with that. The part that always makes me laugh out loud is when he's sort of gazing off uh, at the, toward the beginning of his journey. And he says, I'm not ready to go alone. And then it's like two seconds pass. And he says, all right, alone then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He just, he, I mean, here, here's, I, I mean, I guess what I really mean is that, the movie would be better if it focused on Kira, who is a much more dynamic character. I yes. think the, the movie would be better if Jen were a better character. Right. Well, that's true. I too. mean, the TV show, you've got three leads, all of them great. Um, and it's just, yes, I will definitely admit that Jen is, is not as good as Kira. Um so I, I, but I don't think focusing it on Kira is, is a solution. I think making Jen a better character is, is what would fix it. I guess having two two good leads would be better. That's right. Yeah, I yeah. think it would have also been better if we had been following both Jen and Kira from the beginning. I know <laughs> part of the there's a whole surprise when Jen first discovers Kira and learns that there's another Gelfling out there. But I think it would still be satisfying for us to follow two Gelflings who both think that they're the last one. And we know that they're not the last one until they meet each other. And then, you know, we would have gotten to know Kira a little bit more. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a different movie though. It would. Yeah. 
it would also be a longer movie. A little yeah. bit, yes. <laughs> so, um, and like, I don't know. I one of the things that I really love about Kira, obviously, I, I love her design more than more than Jen's. For one thing, I think she's just a much more appealing puppet. Oh, it's interesting because you know, uh, you know, one of the things that that Wendy Froud said was uh, trying to get get uh, a female uh, character was a little hard. Well, actually, she was more specific when they were, when they were going for more of an trying more animalistic versions of the Gelflings. She was saying it's a lot harder to get a female uh, animalistic character. Um, once they went decided, you know, they wanted to, wanted to go more human. Um, I guess it, it became easier to to make that that female. Yeah. yeah, aren't some of those early uh, prototype puppets like they have antennas and stuff? Some of them are, are furry faces. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's yeah. They tried the whole range, um, trying to find, and uh, apparently, you know, uh, Wendy would would sculpt things up and show them to Brian and Jim, Brian Froud and Jim Henson, and they would make some comments and. Uh, sometimes Jim's was just like, no, something different. And then she'd go back and do something different. And it, it took a while to <laughs> finally, uh, get Brian Frown and, and Jim Henson to, to really agree that, that, yeah, that's what we want. You know, it's funny. Um, I, someone pointed out that Cantus on Fraggle Rock is basically what Jim Henson was like in the eighties, just like <laughs> showing up to say cryptic things. And that <laughs> just like telling her something else is so Cantus, right? Uh huh. Like, I love that. So, um, obviously, Jen and Kira are not the only characters in this movie. So that's another thing I just wanted to talk about. What, who, who are your favorite characters beyond the two main Gelflings? Well, the Chamberlain, of course. Great one. Why? Mm. <laughs> you know, he's it, it, just a, a a fun character. He's you know he's. You know, uh, sleazy and underhanded, and just a really fun villain. Yeah, he has the most personality of any of the Skeksis. Yeah, opposed to like the the Garth Master, the general who's just you know big and you no know, death to Gelflings. He know? just kind of growls. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I I definitely think um, uh, Simon Pegg did an excellent job with the, the Chamberlain in the TV show. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's wild that that's famous actor, Simon Pegg and not Barry Denon, the same person yeah. who plays him in the dark crystal. Cause yeah. it sounds exactly the same. It's wild. I guess we don't know at what point in the creative process that mm, came in. Do we like, was that in the script? Was that? Yeah. I don't know. Something they came up with when they, when they were dubbing it. I don't know, but yeah, it really does. It sticks with you. It's a great, little character thing. I don't know. It's uh, cause Frank Oz performed that character. Yeah. Right. Yes. He puppeteered it, the Chamberlain. It seems like something he might have come up with. Yeah. Maybe. I don't, I'm not basing that on anything, you know, any knowledge. It just, it feels very Frank Oz ish. Yeah. It feels like I, animal or cookie monster or something, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So anyone, any other characters you wanted to talk about, right? Well, Agra is, Oh, a great character. Yeah. Um, I actually, she's, you mentioned she's my favorite too. Yeah. You mentioned Cantus earlier. Agra is a little bit like Cantus too. in some of her, like she's going to help Jen find the crystal shard, but she's going to be as cryptic as possible about it. When Jen 
tells her that his master. Oh, he tells her his master's his master sent him on this this quest. And Augur says, "Where is he? Around here?" Jen says, "He's dead." And she kind of looks around and says, "Could be anywhere then." Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. That feels a little bit like Cantus and a little bit like Jim. It kind of feels like that's his that that kind of fits in with his uh, philosophy. Yeah, I also love the design of Agra. Like that's such a hideous puppet. She's so ugly in the best way. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it was either Jim Henson or Frank Oz that said she's so ugly, she's beautiful. Oz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Frank said that. Who, yeah. who also performed her, by the way. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Because that's the thing. is like I, I mentioned Jim doing Jen earlier. If you leave Frank, Frank Oz's voice in as Agra, it's just Yoda, right? Like, I don't Basically, think, yeah. I don't think you can release a movie in 1982 with like a weird puppet mentor voiced by Frank Oz. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are some clips in the that that making of documentary where you hear his auger voice, which is pretty funny. Sure. Yeah, the entire uh, scene with uh, Frank's voice is uh, is on the DVD. It's part of the work print material, right? Yeah, I remember right. Part yeah, the, yeah, that's cool. Um, the the device of Augur's eyeball is also a very cool idea. How yeah. she can like throw her eyeball. Well, and she can she can see out of it while she like she she pulls it out of her face and she can just move it around and yeah, even when it it's up. on a table and she's yes. locked in a cage several feet away she can still see out of it. Right, which they reused in uh, Toy Story Three. Mrs. Potato Head does the same thing. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agra, really good character. Really yeah. fun. She was she's about great. to explain everything when the Gartham showed up. I know those. Speaking of which, well, I, I guess we don't want to talk about like creatures yet. But um, do we consider Fizzgig to be a character? Sure, I think so. Because I think he's the greatest. I mean, I think oh. Fizzgig is like the most adorable little guy. Yeah, I amazing think performance the, by Dave Goals. Dave Goals, yeah. Um, who again t- talking about the TV show? Dave Goals came back. I think only worked on the one episode to perform a Fizzgig with an eye patch. Yes, when which it was established that Fizzgig is the name of the whole species. Yeah, yeah which I'm not crazy about, frankly. Because it well, just seems like that's his name. Like, that's yeah, what Kira has named right. him. There have been a, a couple of Muppet dogs named Dog. So why not a, a, a puppet Fizzgig named Fizzgig? I suppose so. Maybe, maybe Kira's just not uh, that imaginative. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe uh, there are no Fizzgigs left. Maybe they got wiped out by the Skeksis, too. Oh, buddy. But or, there or, probably or maybe, are. Don't worry. Yeah, maybe her <laughs> poddling mom like handed her uh, fizz gig, and and Kira said, "What's this?" And she said, "Fizz gig," and so she just thought it was the name of of that particular that's, creature. That's what not the name the of name the animal of, is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah not, like not the name of the the species. So there yeah. you go. Right. Um, I've watched this with other people who have who are seeing it for the first time a number of times. And the moment where Jen is in that, that forest or swamp and he's like, he hears a noise and then he's creeping up slowly on that. It's like a hole in a log uh-huh. and everything is very quiet. And then suddenly Fizzgig pops out of that hole going, Aah! that's, that's great to watch with people who are seeing it for the first time. Cause <laughs> they, they are very startled and jump right off the couch sometimes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, he's the greatest. Um, so we, we should. I want to talk about the podlings here too. Oh yeah! Every time I watch this movie, when they go to the podling village, it's just it's like they have entered Fraggle Rock. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it's exactly like 
the, the, the designs are different, but like they're singing, they're all having a good time. They live underground. Yeah. They have know? these little cave rooms that they're all kind of poking their heads out of. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it feels, and then of course that becomes horrifying because of what the podlings all start getting their essence drained. And it's, you know, it's like, it's like Gobo and Red are getting their essence drained. Oh no. Like that's where that analogy becomes horrifying. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh yeah, they're oh. at Fraggle Rock. Oh no. The Wander Fraggles McMooch are lucky they only had to deal with Gorgs. And Wander McMooch. Yes. <laughs> Wander McMooch would have drained their essence if he had been able to figure out how to. Oh, he yeah. would have. That's only. true. That's true. Wander, hey, remember when Wander McMooch went to Scrooge's nephew Fred's dinner party? All right. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Um, do you guys watch Stranger Things? Yeah. Uh, I, Did- I gave up after. Once Paul Reiser showed up, I checked out. <laughs> Well, what? did you notice like, then, I, I'm, Eric? I'm not I kidding. I've, I've seen the first two episodes of season two, and then I was like, this is too much Paul Reiser, and I stopped watching. Go on. Go on, right? <laughs> did you notice in that one episode, I forget, one of the kids was trying to get the other ones to to play Dungeons and Dragons with him, and he started playing music, and it was the song from the Podlink Village. Oh, I don't think I heard or saw anyone on the internet point that out at the time, but as soon as I heard it, it was like, oh, I know this music. Where do I know it from? And it was the Podling song. Oh, huh. sure. I must have recognized it at the time, but I don't remember that. Yes, you probably did. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you know who we haven't mentioned at all yet? Who, who? who no one has mentioned? The Mystics. The Mystics. <laughs> <laughs> they look cool. They yeah. move cool. Um, they, just have, they have no personality. Yeah, there's you. I I can't eat. Like I can look at the Skeksis and go, okay, that's you know, that's the ornamentalist and that's the gourmand and that's the ritual master. I look at the mystics and I'm like, um, which one is which? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Even the designs are all very very similar. Right. Well, and it it feels like a missed opportunity, and it also, for me at least, kind of makes the ending less exciting. Like less, it, it, less interesting that they're all one species. Like, I feel like the TV show again. I, we keep talking about the show, but like they keep bringing up the parallels between one and the other. You know, I, mm-hmm. I guess because the audience already knew the twist. Mm-hmm. But here, it's just kind of like, oh, they were the same species. Oh, oh, oh. All right. Yeah, it is sort of revealed to us, like <clears throat> when the Emperor Skeksis and the Master Mystic die at the same time i guess we don't necessarily realize if we're seeing it for the first time that they have to die at the same time right although i feel like in in retrospect the scene in the middle um where one of them dies i don't remember which one yeah that's i think it's when the scientist falls down the shaft and then yeah one of the, well, one of before, the mystics disappears before that when uh jen stabs the chamberlain with the shard and he goes, my hand! And then they cut to the other mystic whose hand is bleeding. And he says, oh, yeah. so, yeah. my hand. But he says so, it even more slowly than <laughs> he that. He just says yes. that. He's, yeah, that's true. That's true. They talk like um, Ents, too. <laughs> which just makes me wish I was watching Lord of the Rings. I also noticed this time there are a few shots where it, I think they're, they're shot in a wide shot because the mystics are not moving their mouths. Is that right? Like, yeah, like when Jen first sets off when he's leaving the little whatever, like the, the mystic hippie commune. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, they're all like standing in a circle and you just sort of see a wide shot of all of them. And you hear the voice of one of them saying something like, 
go, Jen, take your belongings and go on your journey. But you don't actually see yeah, that mystic's mouth moving. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that was particularly because they, they redid that dialogue later. Oh, the mystics have their own language also? Yeah, that makes no, sense. No, the, the mystics, they always, they always spoke Gelfling, if you can hear the air quotes okay, around yeah. that word. Um, Is that English? Yeah, English. Okay. So the mystics would speak English. Um, I think I, I, I've never, I've never seen like an original scene with the mystic speaking a different language. Okay. Um, so it was always the, the Skeksis had their own language, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, when yeah. we get to that. Are there any other characters either of you want to talk about before we move on to, to visual aspects? Um, we've got the Gelflings, we've got Agro, we've got the mystics, we've got the Skeksis, we've got the Podling. We've got yeah, I think that's we talked about all the characters. Do we consider the Gartham to be characters? Um, I think they? the Gartham are a perfect segue into talking about design. I like that. Because they're, they're so cool looking. Yes. They are very cool. Uh, do, do, here's the thing, though. Do any of us have something else to say besides they're cool looking? Because um, they're, they're very scary. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the shot where, um, where Jen is going through the underground cave and he falls down into the dark room and then the lights of their eyes appear and the clicking clacking of their hands and feet start up and it's just like, Oh no. So right. yeah, they're, they're, they're scary. Yeah. They're super cool. And well, and even like, again, to bring up the TV show, but I guess spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched it and is listening to this. Uh, the final shot of the TV show is uh, the, Skeksis unveiling their new creation, the Garthen. Yeah, that was it's, crazy. It's crazy, but it's also like, even if you haven't seen the movie, it's just kind of like, oh man, what is that thing? You, you know, because like they knew that it would be like the money shot, whether you've seen the movie or not, because it uh-huh. moves, you know? And also just the fact that it was, the the show revealed that they took two existing species and like in this this sort of <laughs> unholy playing with nature way, splice them together to create the Gartham. Mm-hmm. With, just made it that much more uh, terrifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it, that's actually one of the things that bums me out that it doesn't sound like they're doing a second season. You know, I don't know. I guess it, I guess we would have heard by now if if Netflix had decided to do another one. But boy, I, I really I really hope there's still a chance. Yeah. yeah, but um, you know what else are really cool looking? The Land Striders. Oh yeah, those guys. And of course, I mean, I'm sure you guys have both seen. But one of the best things about that World of the Dark Crystal documentary is when they show the guys on stilts, just like hopping around practicing uh-huh. their their Land Strider moves. It's so great. Yeah. It's so yeah. oh, wow, what an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah, and, and I actually didn't. I, I forgot to look this up to to verify, but. And maybe we talked about this during the credits of the Great Muppet Caper that uh, it just so happened that some of the puppeteers working on both movies were stilt walkers. So they kind of designed the characters because they had stilt walkers on the staff. Does that sound right? So they, the Land Striders were not were originally described in in the script. I think as like uh, more spidery. Um, so the the original ideas that they were working with was some kind of six-legged creature and so the various uh you know they brought in various mimes and other and people like that to to play you know the the mystics and and other characters like that 
And th- so they started working on, you know, trying to get this six-legged character working or a multi-legged character. And then one of them basically said, you know, well, what about stilts? You know, I, 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 I've got these, I do these stilt things and, and still you can move pretty fast on stilts. And so they, he brought in the stilts and everyone saw them and said, yeah, that'd be, that works great. So yeah, it was definitely the, 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 the design of the Land Striders came from uh, one of the performers bringing in their stilts to, as, to show off as an idea for how the, the Land Striders could work. Yeah, that is that is. And that's one of those things that like just the magic of practical effects, you know, uh-huh. Yeah. like now, now none of that would happen because they just wouldn't worry about it. And they just design them to look however they wanted. And it'd be a CG character. They would just animate it all. Yeah. And it's so like, I mean, I'm an old man. Like I talk <laughs> about I talk about how much I love practical effects all the time. But it's just like there's just something magic about them, and and like that's exactly why. Like you watch a, a movie with CG effects, and it's just like, oh, that's a CG effect. Okay, mm-hmm. I know how they did it, you know. And you watch something like this, and it's like, how, why, well, how did this happen? Yeah. They had to physically fit these puppeteers into this weird creature puppet costume thing that looks kind of like a giraffe and kind of like a bat and kind of like a catfish. Yeah. yeah. That's accurate. Yeah. And I only, there was only one shot where I could see the string that I guess was like a safety harness. So they did a very good job of hiding those two. Yeah. They didn't have uh they couldn't erase them digitally back then. No, not quite. Right. I guess they could have painted them out and maybe did, you know? Yeah. I don't know what the process in, for that would have been back some, then. In some frames. Yeah. yeah back I, then I it was, sure. Yeah, I was I was reading in the book in the book uh, the Dark Crystal, the ultimate visual history. Um, plug plug, good book by Cassine uh, Gaines. Um, yeah, they were talking about how there were there were certain sh- you know they they said they in the documentary it says they always had a safety cable and the book it says they didn't always have a safety cable. There were times <laughs> when it, it was just impossible to hide the safety cable, and when that happened, they went without. Yeah. That's, so, uh, well, sometimes you, you prioritize art, I guess. Yeah. Right. Wow. That is wild. Mm-hmm. So any, like any other, uh, favorite design or, or puppetry elements you guys want to talk about? Um, Eric, so start with you. let's, let's just talk about that, that scene, uh, where the morning after, uh, uh, Agra's, uh, observatory is burned down. We have this, just several minutes shot of all these different creatures and plants and animals. And I, I, I just love the little running guy who, who, who runs along and jumps and, and uh, tries to catch some insects and then he runs into this little thing and a mouth closes on him. And all these little mushroom things go, yeah, boop, 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 boop. yeah that sequence is, is one Which of is the highlights. Fun little story there. Yeah, I like the little things that look like flowers, and then they kind of take off like they're. I don't yeah. even know what they just kind of spin and fly up in the air. Yeah, those are actually shot in reverse, and they were dropped down. Ah, that makes right. sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, those bloop 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 things. That's those are the same things that that like ate Rian and the hunter in Age of Resistance, right? I think so. I forget what they called them there. And then somebody, I don't remember. Somebody yeah. listening right now is is telling us what they're called, but we can't hear them. Yeah. Great. Please email us. Uh, moving right along at toughpigs.com. Yes. 
And then I noticed I noticed something while rewatching the movie. Um, there are always little little crawlies uh, running around the the the, the castle. Yeah, um, so I think aren't those the little wind up toys that they talk about? Yeah, um, in I think it's in the the behind the scenes documentary where like they just bought a ton of these like things you would just get at a toy store for a dollar. These yeah. little fuzzy wind ups, or, or maybe they added the fuzz to them to, to yeah. make them look more otherworldly. I'm sure. So they would just like wind them up off off camera and then just let them kind of run around the the frame. Yeah. Definitely makes the the castle look more lived in and real. Have these, yeah, these and I around. and I've I've also been able to notice more of them as uh, home media has gotten better. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think I ever really noticed them when I was watching my you know pan and scan VHS taped off TV. Uh-huh. But then on DVD, yeah, I was right. able to notice more of them, and on Blu-ray, I notice even more of them. Sure. Yeah. Um. Oh, speaking of the pan and scan VHS, to, sorry to bounce back a little bit, but I, for, I meant sure. to bring this up earlier, talking about history with it. Um, the VHS had the opening narration part, like the, the prologue, in widescreen with like thatched bars on the tops and bottoms. You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was because of the credits, right? Like the credits wouldn't have fit if it was cropped. Right. Yeah. And I remember thinking that that was like, the most exciting thing about this movie when I was a kid. <laughs> Were you disappointed that the whole movie didn't have those bars? Kind of was, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, you know, I, I forgot to say earlier, I didn't see this movie until I was in high school. I grew up with Labyrinth, and this one I didn't see until I became like Mr. Online Muppet fan. Yeah. Huh. You know, but yeah. I bought the VHS at that time. Did you buy the, the VHS with the clamshell case? Clamshell VHS used, yep, on eBay. Yeah, it had that. I always thought that art was weird. It was all. It was kind of cartoony. It was this like hand drawn or, or painted artwork that made it kind yeah. of look like it might be an animated movie. Like the the Skeksis has like a very like Land Before Time sharp tooth look to it. <laughs> yeah, on the front of that exactly case. It. By the way, the carnivorous plants uh, are called gobbles. Oh right, gobbles. Yes, awesome. I don't know if they had that name before the Age of Resistance existed, but there you go. Yeah. Speaking of which, I, I don't. I'm sure that they say thra, do 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 they say thra in the movie? No, I don't. They don't they say it, do. right? Yeah. They never say thra so, in the movie. And so, like, I was not at all aware that that's what the world of this movie was called until the TV show came out. Like, I'm sure it's in like you know production materials and things. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I knew until maybe like the Henson Company started kind of pushing it more as a nostalgia thing when they started the Dark Crystal website and more of this yeah. material became available to us. And also in several of the early script drafts, they referred to it as Mithra for a long time. Yeah, it started as Mithra, and then they, oh, Mith- they oh, was it Mithra? M I T H R A. So yeah, yeah, that sounds like Mithra. My, I would say Mithra, but yeah, at some point. It got changed to Thraw. But yeah, that, that was never in the in the movie. Right. And then in the show, they say it all the time. Yes. Yeah. Like they say it many times per episode, right? Everyone's like, Thraw abides. We must save Thraw. <laughs> also, I noticed that on the show, uh, they, they referred to years as trine. 
Yes. Like, it's yeah. been a thousand trying. But the voiceover narrator in this does refer to a thousand years. Yes. Right. But, uh, so, but he's American. Yes. <laughs> now, at, at, okay, at the, time that, at the time the movie came out, there was a, a book that came out called The World of the Dark Crystal by Brian Froud. And uh, it's filled with, you know, a lot of, of the artwork um, that, that Brian Froud made for the movie. But it also has uh, text uh, about the lore of the world. And um, so there, there's a, a large section, which is uh, Agra telling the story of how the Erskex came to Thra and how uh, the Erskex were split into two. And so she, one of the things that always caught me was she, she would say 999 trine and one trine. I saw that on the dark crystal wiki. I was very thrown off by that. Yes. That's, that's, uh, that's from the world of the dark crystal. Yeah. It, it has multiples of three. 999 oh. and one. Yeah. Well, that's cute. I guess. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really scan like you don't uh, i don't think you like think of that as logical but no, it's like all it's, right it's a little it's a bit fantasy much. world whatever yeah yeah I, it's it's it sounds to me like it's sort of trying to reach like a storyteller <laughs> from the henson show storyteller level of cleverness but maybe it's a little bit too cute yeah it does sort of right. sound somewhat like something that uh that john hurt would say yeah it does you know john like, hurt should have narrated this movie John Hurt should have played. John Hurt should have been Jen's voice. Jen would have <laughs> seemed a lot older. He would, but he also would have <laughs> seemed a lot more competent. Maybe a younger John Hurt. Oh, speaking of voices, I, uh, do you mind if I go please, into this? Um, please, because we didn't mention this. Uh, although Jim Henson's voice was dubbed over, and Kathy Mullen, who puppeteered Kira, her voice was dubbed over, um, so she wouldn't sound like. Uh, Moki, presumably. Oh, but I, are, think, uh, I think she could sound like Moki, and it would be fine. You know, like even more so than fine. Jim. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but anyway, yeah, yeah. There are a few uh, characters who are voiced by the performers. Very few, um, though. Yeah. So Steve Whitmire's voice is the voice that we hear from the scientist, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much the same as his Marlon Fraggle voice. Yeah, it's oh, kind yeah. of like a an even more deranged Peter Lorre impression. <laughs> like we're going to drain their essence. <laughs> and then, uh, the Emperor and I think another one of the Skeksis are voiced by Jerry Nelson, but he didn't actually work on the movie. Yes, correct. the The Ritual Master is Jerry Nelson. Yes, there you go. It's and, it's and, unmistakable when he just kind of like, just that that loud voice of his. Right, like yeah. I don't even remember what he says, but it's just like. I come in here for lunch every day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly what, what uh, the ritual master said. Yes, just, just bring like me the, a burger. Just like the count would say it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then yeah, the emperor voice, I always thought sounds kind of like Scred from the, the Gort it, sketches it, yeah. on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. The emperor voice does sound like Scred, yeah. And yeah, honestly, it, the, the, the character that the ritual master might sound the most like is Pogborg, actually. Like, oh yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's good. that very like junior. Yep. You're an idiot. Like you know. yep, yeah. Good call. Uh, and then there's a couple characters that have the voice of the puppeteer Brian Meal, who was a very like he was all over Muppet and Henson projects at this time. Yeah, um, right. he's he was, the voice he of was the, both the dying. Elmo and 
he was both Elmo and Telly at this time. Yes, yes, exactly. He was Telly for a while, like during some of my childhood. Right. Um, yeah. And the 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 mystic, the the dying master mystic, actually kind of sounds like his Telly voice to me. Huh. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And then he's uh, one of the the Skeksis as well, I think. The ornamentalist. There you go. Do you know the names of all the Skeksis? You seem to be very uh, Skeksis savvy. Um, not all of them. Uh, like, uh, okay, the Emperor is Skekso. The Chamberlain is Skeksil. I actually wrote them all down just to see if it would come up. The Gartham Master is Skekung. <laughs> uh, the, the only one I know is that the scientist is Skektek, which Skek-tech. I think is hilarious. I think that's good. Skekna is the ritual master, but um, yes, yeah. I just the all these crazy names are like I, I, it's great for those fans who can actually remember them. But like Skek Ayuk, Skek Act, Skek Lock, Skek Skek. It's Skek Ayuk is goofy, right? Yeah. And then all the the mystics have names like Ursul, Ursu, Urti, Ur M, Urza, Urkul. Yes, the the nerdiest mystic is Urkul. Did I? I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. That's actually why he died. It was because he didn't get any cheese. All right. Oh, no. Okay. What else? What else about the mystics, Ryan? Um, I, oh, well, I, yeah, I was just talking about the voices, but I don't, I, I think that's, that's all I had. Although I, I did also have in my notes, um, when they were working on Age of Resistance or when that came out, uh, Lisa Henson pointed out that the mystics were so hard to perform. Like they're just so physically taxing on the performers. That was one of the reasons why they did not have much scream time in uh, yeah. in Age of Resistance. Right. Which again, like I, I get, but it is it is kind of too bad that after Age of Resistance, we still don't know that much more about them. Like except for the true. one episode, the one episode where Andy Samberg and Bill Hader are roommates. <laughs> right, which was a new Mystic character who was totally different from all the others. Yeah. Right. And which is a great episode. It's maybe the best episode. Oh, um, yeah. That, that whole, the puppet show? Yeah, it's, it's great. great. So yeah. good. Um, but that but doesn't happen. Like the, the, other, the other mystic, the archer, um, I think was slightly more interesting than the others just because he was out and about and shooting arrows. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess, like, now that we're talking about it, they did make the mystics more interesting than the movie. <laughs> just yes. not... Not quite to the same extent as the Gelflings, for example. And we uh, only saw for two of them. Reasons. Yeah. And do we when we yeah. never see those two at the same time? Is it is it just one puppet? Or no, we do. They they show the the hunter yeah. shows up there, right? They yeah. they do appear together. Yeah. yeah. Eric, there were other things you wanted to say about like the uh, work print that's on the DVD and yeah, some so of that just, stuff. So in March of eighty two. Um, they showed uh, an, uh, a, pr- a work of the, the movie to a preview audience in Washington, D.C. It's been come to known as the work print. I don't know why. I mean, uh, most movies get preview showings and, and there are changes well, I, afterwards. But I don't know why it's called the work print. It, presumably it wasn't quite finished, right? 
I, yeah, I, th- I think like it still has Frank Oz's voice in it and stuff, right? Like, uh, no, um, they had okay. Um, I mean, it was, the movie was supposed to come out in June, I think. Um, so it was mostly done, um, but the test screen just went horribly. Uh, people walked out. People didn't like it. Uh, and a big point of it was, um, sort of the the most famous thing about it is that the Skeksis did not speak English in the movie and were not subtitled. And right, the idea seemed was, like a great idea at the time. Yes, because you know you'd pick up what they were saying through context. Uh, they didn't speak as much uh, in that version, and it just didn't work at all. And it's interesting because you know I, I rewatched the the work print scenes. And like the the trial by stone, and it's like, yeah, I guess you can sort of understand, but it's it it just I it it was a mistake to do that. Well, trial by stone doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. Right, uh, that's what I was just about to say. Like, isn't it just kind of uh, doesn't the uh, it's the general right or it, the general and the Gartha master are the same character? Do I have that right? Well, so in the TV show, there's a character called the General, and yeah. uh, the Gartha Master does not appear. Uh, so the the character in the movie is uh, generally called the General in the movie, and in the end credits, he's listed as the Gartha Master. Um, so I, I, as a stickler, would generally call him the Gartha Master just to keep him separate from the General from the TV show. Um, okay, but since we're just talking about the movie, you can you can either either one, and people will understand who you're talking about. But yes. Yeah, but anyway, don't. So they're just like using swords to whack this this rock, and doesn't the Gartha Master really only win and break off a piece of it because the two of them have just already struck it really hard with these swords? Well, I mean, if you see it, it's they've been hitting that rock for a long time. Yeah, there are a bunch of cuts on it. Oh yeah, it's like a lot of cuts. It's it's. But what does that mean? They use it. Like, does that mean they've done trial by stone without any results? I I don't know. I I would guess that you know if two Skeksis have a dispute, they can take it out on the stone to decide who is right. And you know they've had a thousand years, right? And so it's not necessarily always to decide who's going to be the emperor. Yeah, I, I'm sure yeah. they must have used it for other things other than deciding who the emperor is. Hmm. But yeah, right. so the the general he gives it a really big whack and actually breaks the stone, and he can't beat that. So yeah, yeah. I don't know why the the chamberlain thought he could win. That. Oh, so are you thinking like that he could have won even without breaking that big piece off of it? Um, well, I'm I'm guessing I I mean they never explain the rules. Right. I, I'm guessing it's just whoever hits it harder. I don't know how many times they 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 get to hit it. So it's like um, one of those things at a carnival carnival to test your strength. If it goes all the way up and rings the bell, you win. Yeah, I, and it just I think in this case, I, like for the you know they've been hitting this rock for a thousand years to decide their uh, their issues, and the general comes along and just breaks the rock in half, and it's like, yeah, that pretty much ends the competition. He won. Yeah, right. I mean, all, they're all very like. I mean, the Chamberlain drops that, his so. sword. He's, he's yeah, so that's pretty. I like astounded. that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, and I was then they say... rip all the the Chamberlain's clothes off, and he looks so 
like yeah. sickly and pathetic. He looks even uh-huh. grosser. Um, I was going to say about the preview screening. Before that preview screening, in Jim Henson, the biography by Brian J. Jones, uh, Michael Frith talks about how Jim showed that scene to him and Jerry Jewell. And I've got the book open here. Jim mm-hmm. had excitedly asked the two of them to watch one of the first segments he had edited together, the enormous and loud Skeksis banquet scene that Jim absolutely loved. Frith and Jewel sat in the darkened screening room and watched as the Skeksis cackled and hooted at each other in their own language, a scene that seemed to be going on forever, Frith lamented. Mm-hmm. What did you think, Jim asked brightly. Jim, there's one thing I just have to say, Frith began slowly. He knew, said Frith. I said, Jim, I have no idea what that scene was about. You've got to have them talk or at least give them subtitles. So, oh, so yeah. they weren't, they didn't even have subtitles at first, right? Right, no. right. There were no right. subtitles, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah, right. no, that's and it's, like. It's just fascinating to me that, like, and obviously neither of those guys worked on the movie at all, you know, mm-hmm. but like two of his closest collaborators watched that scene and were just like, I can't let you do this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's wild. Yeah, so after, after that disastrous uh, preview screening, uh, the release date was pushed back to December while they started reworking the movie. They, they ended up, so things they did, uh, they recorded English dialogue for all the Skeksis. Uh, they cut about seven minutes out of the movie, including uh, an entire funeral scene for the, the emperor and a conversation that Jen has with uh, Urzov, one of the mystics, uh, before he leaves. Uh, but a bunch of other scenes were just were trimmed down and re-edited. The narration at the beginning was added. They recast Agra, which is interesting. Uh, they actually had a different actress voicing Agra, and they they decided that they they wanted to go with something different. So they cast Billy Whitelaw and uh, had her re-record all of uh, Agra's dialogue. And she's um, great. Yeah, uh, Jen's inner monologue was added. Um, and the final shot of the movie, of uh, the, the white castle in the green valley that was added, uh, later on okay. that was, that wasn't in the original, uh, original, uh, work print. Wow. So that, I mean, that must be in a, a miniature, but still yeah. they had to go back and shoot that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, the valley is like, um, it's actually a shot near uh because uh ilm did the the mat shots and so that's actually uh a valley near uh skywalker ranch hmm. oh, so cool. they just went out and they, and they shot uh you know a plate of the valley and then and then uh matted the 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 castle in right so yeah it's just I, some big changes were made to that movie between that first uh the first work print and the final yeah, which which is really kind of heartbreaking that that Jim Henson had been working on this movie for you know they talk about pre production started in like 1977 right uh-huh. or something I mean, yeah. it's like five years from conception to completion yeah and after all, all that time it's like he has the movie finished and shows it to people and they're just like no no <laughs> this won't do yeah in in the you in know? the making of special he's like this is the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah, and right. he puts it yeah. in front of the world, and they're like, "Eh, it's right. just so different from the Muppet Show." Yes, right. Well, and I, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this later when we get to Labyrinth. But one of the reasons that I've always preferred that movie is that it feels like 
a synthesis of this sensibility and the Muppet Show sensibility. Yeah. Like it feels like Jim Henson's entire career kind of, you know, made into one project. But then but, Labyrinth did even di- didn't do as well as the Dark Crystal. At the box in, office, uh, right? At the box office. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, so it was, it was good that they made the changes they did. Not only because it resulted in a better movie, but oh yeah. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've we've talked about this on the Tough Pigs forum before. I think it's sort of the conventional wisdom that the Dark Crystal was as big a failure at the bo- box office as Labyrinth, but it really wasn't. It it did decently. Yeah, decently whereas, is, is a good way to describe it. Yeah, whereas Labyrinth yeah. was just like a total bomb. Yeah, but right, right. Uh, yeah, I'm people look- did come to see this. I'm, I did. I'm looking. I'm looking it up now. Uh, Dark Crystal made about $40 million in the U.S. Cost 26. It cost 26, yeah. yeah, so so it did okay. And then at some point in the timeline, uh, Lord Lou Grade, was he selling uh, ITC? The so what happened, studio? yeah, so what happened was that his company uh, ran into uh, financial difficulty and Lou Grade got pushed out. Oh, and, he got pushed out. It wasn't even his decision. Yeah. And the new boss okay. had no confidence in the movie. Um, and so Henson actually decided that he was going to buy the movie back from from the company. And so despite the fact, you know, they they spent $26 million on it, and Henson bought it for fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Because wow. 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 they just needed the money. Right, right. 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 Wow. And and what I was gonna say also is Labyrinth four years later made twelve million dollars, so forty and twelve like it's not yeah. even close. No, no, it's wild. I you know and yeah. I, I, again like I feel like most people when asked, most Muppet fans at least when asked would maybe assume the opposite. Maybe I I think well I don't they, they both have a lot of they're they're both very beloved now. As May, these, like, I think they have different kind of fans. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, there I are definitely right. fans who are not like, you know, diehard Henson fans who love one but not the other. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that that covers all of the topics that I had. So, um, Eric, I'll start with you. Any final thoughts before we close? There, there are a couple quotes from the World of Dark Crystal um, that I thought were really interesting. Uh, two sort of contrasting quotes. So Jim Henson said with puppets, a puppet, you're working symbolically. A puppet is a symbol of whatever you're trying to portray. So therefore, if you have an evil character, you're going to look totally evil. You can be evil incarnate. Um, there is only the character itself. And so there's a kind of purity to it. I think that that's really interesting. Sort of, you know, the, we're making a movie with no humans. And so we can make all these characters purely themselves. And then producer Gary Kurtz said, I think that probably the biggest minus of working with non-human characters is the realization of how difficult getting anything on film is. With a human actor, you can just place them in front of a camera and tell them where to go or tell them what to look at, and they do it. And they contribute their ability and talents for how they're supposed to perform. With a non-human actor, we're required to orchestrate every movement, every head turn, every eye twitch, every move from side to side. It's just... Um, so it, it's the two things fighting against each other. It's with puppets, you get this purity that you don't get with humans. 
but you also get these difficulties with humans without humans. Right. It's it's so technically challenging. Yeah. Right. Well, I think I think it was Warwick Brownlow Pike, who's a puppeteer on the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. You played the said, redheaded uh, uh, paladin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He performed the redheaded paladin among many other characters. <laughs> Picking most, out his mo- smallest character on the, on the most show. prominently the Chamberlain. Yeah, um, uh, and he plays Gonger on Sesame Street, also. Uh, but I yep. think it was him who said in promotional materials for that show that the challenge is that with a show like this is that you need puppets to do everything, and they can't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's you know it's amazing how alive they see. Yeah. Given they talked about how they had to, they can't do anything. Yeah, they had to you know, and they do extensive uh, storyboarding for the movie, just thousands and thousands of pictures, just so they could go and look at them and go, <laughs> okay, we can't do that with puppets. We need to rework the scene with new storyboards so that. Uh, you know, there wouldn't, weren't any surprises when they got to uh, actually filming things. Yeah. Yeah. There were a few moments that I kind of caught on this rewatch where it it did occur to me, wow, there are so many people working on this one shot to make these puppets look like they're alive. Like there's a scene when they're under the Skeksis castle uh, sneaking in, I think, Jen, they get separated somehow. Uh Uh, Kira is, is like watching uh, the Skeksis pass by from behind this this kind of rocky column. Right. And, like, she's looking side to side. She's looking around. She's trying to make sure that they don't notice her. And, uh, yeah, I was just thinking, like, wow, there, so there's the puppeteer. There's probably another puppeteer maybe controlling the eyes. They had to light this just right so that the, the lights catch her eyes in such a way that they look organic, like they look like a the, the eyes of a living creature. They yeah. had to build this puppet to convince us that it's an actual living thing. And that's just like a five second shot. So they had uh-huh. to do that for this entire movie every time. Right. Yeah, there's there's the the shot. There there's two shots of, of Kira. I was, I was watching when I was rewatching. I was like, wow, that Kathy Mullen and her crew of, of co puppeteers really did some amazing stuff. There's when she's uh, having her essence drained, and the the beam hits her, and she she recoils in sort of fear and. You, you can see that, you know, she turns, her head turns to the side, but her eyes stay pointed forward and she shakes a bit. And I'm like, wow, that's real. And then when she's stabbed and her, her head just jerks back in pain, I'm like, wow, you, I mean, you, you, you feel this, this woman being stabbed. Right. Even, even though she's just a puppet, they're, they're just dolls wiggling. Yeah. Right. That's right. All they are. Yeah. Ryan, did you have anything else to add before we're done? I am looking through. I have a, <laughs> I have a lot of disorganized notes that we haven't gotten to. Um, did you notice or have you noticed that Jen has some blue hairs on his head? Yeah, yeah, just like Superman. Why? <laughs> because they they couldn't print to, to make it look like he has brown hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. I somehow I never noticed that before, or maybe I notice it anew every single time I watch it and then I always forget in between. Did any of the Gelflings in Age of Resistance have blue hair? Don't remember. Not any of the main ones. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. So maybe that's what makes Jen so special. Yeah. Yeah, that's why he gets to be the main guy. Cool. 
<laughs> that's probably why. Um, yeah. We didn't talk about Kira's wings, but that's a, that's a fun little touch that yeah. Yeah, female Gelfling have wings. I really like that. And also a thing that doesn't come up all that much in the TV show. Like, I guess it's hard to have them flying around, but yeah, they did it a there, couple times. There are definitely several, like Deet flies through her cave. And then when, when there's a fight between the, the, the Madras, that was, Oh, right. Oh, right. Celadon's like, like flying over them all. Right. Doesn't she? Yeah. Flies around. yeah. Yeah. Oh, that rules. Celadon rules. What a great show. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah, we, we should all go, go back and watch show. it again after this. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Little piece of trivia. Do you know why the Mystics have four arms? No. Because uh, they're very similar to uh, trolls that uh, Froud, Brian Froud drew. They're, they're, uh, he, he definitely took his, his troll uh, essence and, and put them into the Mystics, but he didn't want them to be his trolls. So he added, he, he gave them four arms so they would be. They wouldn't be trolls, huh, for for basically trademark reasons because he didn't want to he didn't want to lose ownership of his own trolls to to uh, the Dark Crystal. Oh wow, that that, yeah. that was very uh, clever of him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, a couple things I like that we didn't specifically talk about. Uh, Agra's orrery set is really oh, cool. oh, yeah, I meant yes. to bring that up. That is gorgeous. It's such a It great just looks piece. so big and just all those parts and pieces just swooping around. Yeah. Apparently during uh, during they actually had someone on set whose job was to yell duck to, <laughs> to Frank Oz when the arm got low. Oh, yeah, awesome. good. And apparently one time he missed it and uh one of the arms of the orrery caught Agra's horn and ripped the puppet off of uh, Frank's hand. Uh, yeah, oh, but wow. the puppet was okay, or they fixed it. They had to fix it, but it, it they fixed it pretty quickly, I think. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of surprised that there has never been like a toy or model recreation of that that you could purchase. You know, like a yeah. I mean, I guess it's not going to be like an Agra's Orrery playset for little kids. But like, <laughs> no, it'd be cool if there. It'd be cool if there was. You know? Yeah. No, I think I think they could sell that to the adult fans. Just uh, especially if the parts moved. I don't know if it could be a battery powered thing where you actually where they actually you know swoop around like they do. But even just a a model of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't buy it because I don't have money for it, but I like the idea. <laughs> But you would admire it if someone else bought it. And you Absolutely. Got to look at it. Absolutely. I'm not sure if the version in the TV show was CG or not. I think it was. I don't think they I think built it was. a whole new one. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably right. Um, we didn't get into the other filmmakers a lot other than... Yeah, we didn't, didn't talk puppeteers. about the people who made this. I mean, we right. you, you spent Jim a lot Henson. of time talking about them while you're talking about The Great Muppet Caper because a lot of the same people... Worked on both movies. Right, right. Yes, and again, it's worth noting that they took a six-week break in between finishing that movie and starting this one. Yeah. Which is like nothing to jump into this, you know, yet another movie, and this one is going to be even harder than the other one. Right. That was was just a warm-up, like, for sure. Yeah, and also, like, a completely different tone. They're working on this fun musical comedy, and then they have a short vacation, and then they're back for this bleak fantasy world. Well, the puppeteers did uh, take time during 
filming of Great Muppet Caper to rehearse. They like one once or what maybe one one or two days a week that after filming they'd go over to uh well it wasn't called the creature shop at the time, but the place where they were building uh stuff and they, they'd go and and practice with the puppets. So they, they didn't walk in cold. Right. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, that, that's kind of fun to think about. When we see some of these wacky scenes in The Great Muppet Caper, the puppeteers, hours later, were probably uh, doing some of these very serious, dramatic scenes. Right, mm-hmm. except except for um, Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt, who were just hanging out, because they're not in this movie. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't puppeteer right. on it, I should say. J- Jerry did voices as we've... Yes. Right, yeah. Richard, but Richard wasn't involved at all. Richard was not involved at all. And I, I feel like it might be because those two were on Sesame Street more. Mm, maybe. You, you know, at, at, at that time, they were they were maybe like back there doing that. If I'm not sure. Overlapped, maybe. Yeah, although I guess Brian Meal worked on this, who was on Sesame Street constantly around that Oh, time. yeah, so, yeah. He was all over Sesame Street at that time. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Um, but, but yeah, the director of photography, Oswald Morris, the editor, Ralph Kemplin. The production designer Harry Lang, just mm-hmm. such very very different projects, but yeah. all these guys worked on both movies. The big um, new name I would say in the Dark Crystal is Sherry Amott, who was the creative supervisor. So she was sort of running what was basically the Creature Shop. It wasn't called the. They didn't name it the Creature Shop until after this movie came out. But well, that uh, and then they they realized they could turn that into a, a new yeah. venture to make make creatures for other people's movies. Yeah. But when they when they started in, in New York in, you know, beginning of 1978, she was sort of uh, in charge of the creature group. And she later uh, also was directly responsible for uh, uh, the mystics, I think. So she actually, yeah, she was actually like led the teams for two or three of the creature groups and then was also... Uh, it's like the overall in charge. And so she had actually worked on the Muppet show for a while. Uh, she's the one who built Barkley for uh, Sesame street. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, cool. um, so that's, that's sort of her, uh, her, her pedigree when she came into the, this movie. I like Barkley. She also uh, was I, uh, one of the, the big people on uh, the, one of the big uh, builder people on uh, little shop of horrors a few years later. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. So she continued to work with Frank Oz a short yep. time later. Yeah, which so I don't know if we specifically said this was co-directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. I, my impression has been that Jim was mostly concerned with the technical aspects and Frank was more concerned with the performance aspects. That's generally how Frank has described the breakdown. Yeah. Yeah, Frank is very humble about his his contributions to this when it comes up. He just kind of says, well, Jim really directed that movie. It was his movie, and he just asked me to help out. Yeah. Right. Although I do, I've, I've always thought it was kind of neat that Frank Oz, in his early directing films, get his early films that he directed, each one has fewer puppets than the last, right? Like, <laughs> this movie is all puppets. Muppets Take Manhattan has a bunch and many humans. Little Shop of Horrors has one puppet character. And then from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels on, zero puppets. So it's like he was like working yeah. his way out of being a puppet director, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Huh. Uh, and then Gary Kurtz was the producer. He had worked on the first two Star Wars movies. And then my understanding is that he had a little bit of a falling out with George Lucas. 
and I uh, ended up I, working on this. So basically, uh, Kurtz went to, to Henson and said, uh, can we get some help on this Yoda guy? And uh, if, if you do, I'll, I'll come help you on this on this crystal movie. So that was sort of the, the deal between the two of them. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, but Kurtz he didn't was work on Return the, of the Jedi at all. No. I, I don't know why he, he didn't work on Jedi. Um, but yeah, I, I may be jumping to conclusions about you know any kind of falling out, but yeah. for some reason he didn't return to work on the last uh, Star Wars movie. Yeah. Yeah. He was also the second unit director for Dark Crystal. So. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah, it's good for him. And then uh, the screenplay is credited to Jim Henson and David O'Dell, who was one of the writers on The Muppet Show. Yes, and who also got special thanks in the closing credits of The Muppet Movie. Oh, yeah, did we... As we, as we talked about at that time, yeah. Did and we discover exactly why that was? Did he contribute I don't, a rewrite? Don't know. Or... It sounds like yeah. he probably did, you know? Yeah, maybe just punched up a little. Right. Um, but David O'Dell has talked about how Jim Henson's spirituality influenced the movie and the world of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think this was um, <clears throat> an afterword in a Dark Crystal comic book collection. Uh, he wrote that Jim Henson insisted that people who were working on the movie read this book called Seth Speaks. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I was flattered that Jim wanted me to understand his spiritual insights before we collaborated. The book was written by Jane Roberts, a science fiction writer, who one day began channeling Seth. Seth was a multidimensional male being outside time and space who dictated monologues on metaphysics through her when she was in a trance while her husband wrote them down in shorthand. And he said, the spiritual kernel of the Dark Crystal is heavily influenced by Seth. Which I so, find very interesting. That is so Jim. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Jim. I have not read Seth Speaks. I would actually be curious to read it just to see, you know, what kind of vibes I can pick up on that might seem like the, the Dark Crystal or like Jim Henson's uh, spirituality in general. But I, yeah, I, I think, think that's mis- really the mystics. The mystics are very much Jim's idea of spirituality you know, oneness with nature and all that. Yeah. And and even, so yeah, the last thing I had actually was the Erskex, which are the, the beings who show up at the end. They're the, the combinations of the Skeksis and the mystics. The Uru. Which yes, is all, which only mentioned once in the movie when the, when the, the mystics show up in the, in the crystal chamber, one of the Skeksis sees them and shouts, Uru! That's the only. Oh, wow. That's the only time where uh, their actual name. Uh, well, how come they have two names and the Skeksis only have one name? I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, that sort of like the the dual, the the dual good and evil sides of of our spiritual nature. That kind of feels like it would be part of what Jim Henson was thinking about uh, spiritually at the time and philosophically. Um. The Erskex are so weird looking. They're very tall mm-hmm. and they're just glowy white. And the one who speaks, his mouth doesn't actually move. Yeah. So every time I look at him, my brain always initially wants his nose to be his mouth. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm looking at that. his nose, well, actually, thinking it's his mouth. Actually, when we watched this last night, my, my wife, Rosalind, who's been on the podcast before, I was just like, oh, those guys are so cool looking. Because I do. I think they're super cool looking. And she was just like, they don't have mouths. Who cares? I don't know where I'm supposed to look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, But so I, I like their that. like weird Groot tree hair. I like that a lot. They do look like Groot. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Um, But I, I, you know what I don't like is when they're actually transitioning from like their separate forms to their single form. Mm-hmm. It's just covered up by like a shaft of white light. So that. Which, like, I guess how else are they going to do it? But also, like, it's not that cool to just see, like, a giant block of light in front of them so that they can cover up, you know, the the actual... You'd like to see some kind of morphing effect? Yeah, which I don't know if it's possible in, in 1982, right? Yeah, yeah maybe not with this budget. Unless yeah. you do, like, stop motion or something, right? But Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, but it's I but I think that the actual design of the puppet is cool enough that I don't really care that much. Uh, you know, it's interesting because like, uh, Brian Froud was actually a little disappointed with the Earth's Gex because uh, they, they wasn't able to uh, complete work on it as much as he had hoped. So he right. sort of felt they were unfinished. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, they they aren't fully realized, I guess. Right. So anything else before we close? I just thought of something. Go for it. What, I have one more memory of... of encountering this movie as a kid which was um i went into a video store with my parents and this movie was playing on the tvs around the video store i guess it had just come out on vhs and it was the scene where all the the mystics raise their heads and they're they're calling for jen they do that oh Oh. and they do oh yeah recola yeah (laughs) And there was another kid, I guess about my age, I don't know, maybe younger, in the video store. And he thought that was the most hilarious thing. <laughs> he just cracked up at that. I love that. So, yep. Yeah, I think that's all I have. All right. Awesome. All right. So that brings us down to the end for today. Uh, we will be back again with a couple of more bonus episodes before we start Mistake Manhattan. Um, but so watch. Keep Keep an eye out for those, listeners. And, and, and can I, what Ryan? And what is the next bonus episode? The next bonus episode is the Fantastic Miss Piggy Show. Ooh, yes, I'm very excited to talk about that one because it's super weird and I like it a lot. <laughs> um, I haven't seen that in years. Wow, yeah, yeah. The last time I watched it was when I wrote a Tough Pigs article about it five years ago. So I'm excited to watch it again. Uh, but in the meantime, check out toughpigs.com on the internet. We're on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, we're, we're all over the place. Uh, you can follow Ryan on Twitter at me, Ryan Rowe. And you cannot follow me on Twitter anymore. I blew it up. I exploded my Twitter account. And you've actually managed to stay away from it. Well, it's gone. My Twitter account's gone. So but, I mean, to, you haven't have started start a from, new account. I'd have to start from scratch, which just seems like a lot of work, you know? Yeah. And I would just end up yeah. following all the same people. So, right. no thanks. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, our theme music is by Stacy Rosen and our logo is by Morgan Davey. So thank you once again to both of them. Eric, where can our listeners find you online? They can read my pearls of wisdom on the tough pigs forum. Yeah. Come <laughs> check us out anytime, Eric yeah. and everyone else. We're, we're hanging out there still. There's a link on the front page of toughpigs.com. Yes. 
We are always happy to And you to can also email us at moveinrightalong at uh, toughpegs.com. Yes, indeed. And uh, you can always, now is the perfect time to give us that positive review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. We always appreciate that. And tell everyone you've ever met to listen to Moving Right Along. And please join us whenever it comes out for the Fantastic Miss Piggy Show. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Trial my stone. I'm playing a flute and I'm boring. <laughs> oh.